As Rosie announced, there's no children's worship today. Good job. So, uh, Madeline, get, head on back to your parents, wherever your parents are. Over that way. Oh, there's your mom. Um, uh, that lantern reminded me of one of, my big, one of my many pet peeves about movies is whenever in usually adventure movies they go into a cave, uh, they find a torch and light it. And somehow this torch stays lit for hours. I don't know where they get the fuel. I don't know. Um, it's amazing. I, I, I'm always distracted. Whenever there's a lit torch, I don't know where they found the torch. I don't know how they're going to keep it lit. It's, it's distracting to me. Um, in the church calendar, we are now in the Christmas season. If you uh, know or don't know, the Christmas season is 12 days after Christmas, leading up until Epiphany, Epiphany on January 6th, um, the 12 days of Christmas, the song, so today is the third day of Christmas, so there should be like three French hens everywhere, I don't know, I haven't seen any yet, I'm waiting, um, but the Christmas season is a time to celebrate, it's a time to uh, celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, and during this time, Advent is actually the time of waiting, waiting for the first advent of Jesus, remembering that first advent, and waiting for the second advent. Christmas is the time to celebrate. So now is the time to say Merry Christmas. So let's celebrate. So Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. There you go. Um, in the bulletin uh, is written the scripture that we're going to be looking at today. The scripture is correct. The reference in here is wrong. Um, the reference says Acts 3, 22 to 26. Um, this scripture is 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. If you've been around here, you know we have been looking at this first epistle of Peter for many months. We've been looking at this letter that Peter wrote to the scattered churches in Asia. And during Advent, we took a break. And we looked at this sermon from Acts 3, 22 to 26. It's a sermon that Peter himself preached uh, in the book of Acts, and uh, now we're jumping back into his letter. Uh, we're going to go back to 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. So I'm going to read the scripture, and then we're going to talk about it for a little bit. So this is the word of God. We should hear it and respond to it as such this morning, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The very first word in this scripture is but. And if you don't remember what came before it, it might kind of be, it might be a little jarring, might not make sense. So to better understand these verses, I'm just going to jump back a little bit to the verses that came before this. Verses in chapter 2 of 1 Peter 2, 4 through 8, Peter uses this illustration of the living stone. It's singular, living stone, Jesus Christ himself. Verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And so what do stones build? They build houses, they build buildings, they build temples. 
Peter explicitly calls the audience, the scattered and persecuted church, to be living stones. Verse 5, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Living stones, many temples, many sacrifices through Jesus, the living stone. I'm going to read a quote here from theologian Edmund Clowney. He says this, to speak of a growing temple, okay, a growing temple of living stones. You get this image in your head? A growing temple of living stones stretches an Old Testament figure to convey New Testament reality. There was a temple in the Old Testament. This is clear to anyone who knows the Old Testament. And now it's a New Testament reality. The figure of the tabernacle, temple, pictured the presence of God among his people. God's tent was pitched in the center of Israel's wilderness camp. In the land of promise, God made the temple at Jerusalem his dwelling. God was there among his people. They belong to him and he to them. And that's what Christmas is. That's what Christmas is. It is God, the, the transcendent God being imminent among his people. It is God dwelling. When John talked about Jesus coming in Christmas, he used the word tabernacle. Jesus tabernacled with us. He tented with us. He is here. And why did he do it? Because his people were suffering. This is his plan to help, to rescue, to save his people. Um, But again, we're getting to this but. It doesn't make sense yet. Why would there be a but? Well, the but is because in verses 6 through 8, this living stone... um, Peter uses the opposite side of the analogy, if you will. It's the same illustration of a rock, but he shifts focus. He quotes Isaiah and Psalms. This is verses 6 through 8. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. And here's the first but. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This rock will either be what your life is built upon or it will trip you up. This rock will not be ignored. Verse 9, but you, but you will not stumble, but you will not be crushed, but you, you are a chosen race. You have been chosen by God. You have been chosen to never perish. Um, I was asked this past week by a friend how he would explain the gospel to his nine-year-old girl. Uh, I, of course, answered very eloquently, with scripture references very quickly and amazingly. Um, Or I stumbled around and was like, I think it says somewhere in the Bible this and this and this. That's more of what happened. Um, But I eventually came down to, uh, somewhere in the Bible, Jeremiah 30, 22, God promises, you shall be my people and I will be your God. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. God chooses a people, and they are his. 
Tell your nine-year-old. Tell your two-year-old. God, the gospel is the transcendent God coming down and walking with you throughout your life. He walks with. He dwells among. He tabernacles with. He walks with you. The, God, the gospel is God's promise, power, and physical accomplishment to come down and walk with you throughout your life. You see, Christianity is not some ethereal, spiritual-only religion of ideas. It is a very nature, is by its very nature, physical, tangible, and incarnational. It's not a Joseph Campbell farce, myth. The gospel is the supernatural and the natural wrapped itself up into one person, the kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Um, every other religion, worldview, philosophy is a striving toward God or a striving toward a moral goodness, whether you believe in a God or not. It's just striving towards something. You're striving. Tim Keller uh, puts it better when he says that other religions are advice. Guys, I don't need any more advice. I get advice a lot about how to raise my kids. You, I'm sure, get advice all the time about how to better manage your time how to save money, how to spend your money wisely. We get advice a lot. How to lose weight, how to keep weight off. I mean, advice happens all the time. Friends, we don't need advice. We need help. That's the gospel. We don't need more advice. We need help. We need an incarnational who, God who walks with us. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson, in one of his books, he describes this story about John Wesley. When John Wesley was dying, he's uh, uh, the founder of Methodism, famous, wonderful reformer. Uh, John Wesley was on his deathbed, and this is Sinclair Ferguson saying, when John Wesley lay dying, many of his friends came to visit him. Strong Christians as they were, they were anxious to encourage him with the promises of God. That is wonderful. You should remind each other of the promises of God. At one point, however, Wesley raised himself in the bed and the special energy said to, and with special energy said to them, "Yes, all these promises are true, but best of all, God is with us. But best of all, God is with us. Help has come." and his name is Jesus Christ. You are a royal priesthood. Peter earlier had said you're a holy priesthood. By saying royal, he's not just focus, focusing on our task, what we need to be doing, but he's focusing on our identity. We are part of God's family. Yes, there is a kingdom of God. We are not just subjects within that kingdom. We are part of the family of God. And a priesthood points us to the fact that we have access. We have access to the family of God. Last night, we were, I was out to dinner with some family members. It was wonderful and delicious. Amazing. And speaking of advice, don't give me any advice, but we, uh, we did leave our four children home alone. I have an older uh, child who is very responsible. I won't tell you his age uh, because then you might give me some advice. I don't want it. Very, they were very responsible. It was, it, it, everything went, it was great. We were going to go out to dinner. Dinner restaurant is like four miles away. 
It's not far. And so uh, we get in the car, we tell the kids, just stay calm, stay alive. I will find you, stay alive, stay alive. And uh, we leave. We drive four miles down the road to the restaurant, get into the restaurant, sit down at the table. Not five minutes later, the phone rings. So I pick up the phone, and it's kind of like a, a noisy restaurant. I think the server was there at the time, so it's kind of distracting. I just heard my, my son say, uh, shoo, broken glass. All right, I'm going to stand up now. So I, I stand up, and I leave the table. I go outside of the restaurant. I'm like, wait, hold on. What? What? Well, apparently, um, my children were playing a game in the living room, as they want to do, and uh, in order to play the game, you need to clear the game field, right? And so, just a gentle toss, just a simple little, let me take this shoe and just scoot it out of the way. So, I'm just going to take this simple shoe and just scoot it out of the way, out of this room, across the next room <laughs> to where our door, to our, our, our glass door to our porch goes right through a pane. Just, to, just a simple toss. Just a simple toss. It's not a big deal. Um, I think the glass is still there. We still haven't yet figured out the whole story yet, but just a simple toss. The reason why I share that story is because my son, was, he, was, he did what he needed to do. He realized, mm, this might be something I need to call mom and dad about. When broken glass is involved, you need to call mom and dad. He had immediate access to me. He had immediate access to me. Pick up the phone, dad, broken glass. Immediate access. He is part of my family. We have immediate access. We are a royal priesthood part of the family, with direct access to our Father in heaven. You are a holy nation. Um, Matthew Henry writes, all Christians, wheresoever they be, compose one holy nation. They are one nation, collected under one head, agreeing in the same manners and customs, and governed by the same laws, and they are a holy nation, because consecrated and devoted to God, renewed and sanctified by His Holy Spirit. First of all, this is a call to a, a unity with our brothers and sisters. As, as Roger was just saying earlier, we are connected to our brothers and sisters in Perales, Peru. We are connected to our brothers and sisters in South Sudan, where we have a lot of family and friends there, in the Congo. We are connected in unity to our brothers and sisters that are suffering in Syria, that are suffering in Libya, that are suffering in China. We are united to them. But we would be remiss if we didn't focus that more importantly, in this as a holy nation, we are united in church under one head, and that is central to the gospel. That is central to what this means. 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We have, a, we have unity in Christ for salvation. 
We celebrate his resurrection every Sunday. Every Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was on the seventh day, the day that, that remembered, that celebrated the great creative act of God. He created for six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. In the Old Testament, they rested, pointing back to that great creation of God. In the New Testament and in the church today, we have our Lord's Day, our Christian Sabbath, on the first day, pointing to the great new recreation, the great new resurrection of Jesus on that first day, that first Easter. Um, I, I, I won't belabor this point, but we as Presbyterians have an interesting uh, relationship with the church calendar. We've referred to it n- numerous times already here. Uh, we love tradition. We love the things that we can stand on the shoulders of giants as, these ch- as this church calendar points us to the great redemptive acts of Jesus. And for those things, that is great. Christmas, 12 days of Christmas, we should celebrate the incarnation. Lent, we should repent and believe in the, the uh, redemptive work of Jesus. But at the same time, Presbyterians, we have this other branch, if you will, in our tradition, and that is of the Puritans. The Puritans were within our branch of Christianity, if you will, and they rightly saw that there was some profane things in uh, what the church had added. They rightly saw that at best, these added things were distractions. At worst, they were profane. And so the Puritans said, we do have a church calendar. A church calendar is seven days long. That church calendar is Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and it starts again on Sunday. That church calendar is every Sunday. We gather together and we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. I'm, I'm belaboring this point, as I said, I wasn't, wasn't going to do because I want you to understand that they rightly saw, and what Peter is getting at here, we are a holy nation because of the power of the resurrection of Jesus, bringing us from dark to light. And then you are a people for his own possession. Uh, another theologian, Colin Brown, writes, in 1 Peter is a whole series of Jewish expressions shaped by the Old Testament. What the author wishes to underline is the fact that the Christian community is nothing new. It is to be understood as the fulfillment of the promises and hopes given to Israel. In all this, Christ stands at the, head, at, at the head as chief shepherd, as Messiah. My girls, especially uh, two of them, have something very special to them. It is called Beanie Boos. I don't know if you know about Beanie Boos, but they, I think, are the second generation of Beanie Babies. But Beanie Boos are very special to them. One of my daughters is holding theirs right now. Uh, Beanie Boos are very special to them. In fact, one of the conversations that happens at least five times a day is, can I bring these Beanie Boos with us? Uh, we're, just, we're just going to the grocery store. Can, I, can the Beanie Boos come with me? They love the Beanie Boos. Those Beanie Boos are special to those girls. And I think if you are a boy or a girl, or if you are a man or a woman in this room, you can identify with having something special to you. My children are special to me. I love them. They are my special prized possession. 
That is not in some form of aggressive possession. That is a possession of love. I love them. I will, hopefully I don't have to, but I would die for them if I had to. But all of that pales in comparison to God's special possession of his people. They are special to him. We are special to him. Uh, The oft-quoted around here Heidelberg Catechism, question one and two, if you've been around here, we've referred to this numerous times, says, what is your only comfort in life and death? So if you haven't been around the church for a long time, you should still ask yourself that question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Heidelberg says, believer, your answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul to it, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, whose are you? Whose are you? Who do you belong to? Do you belong to your faithful Savior, Jesus? Do you think you belong to yourself? Uh, Another, referring to my children, I love my children. Uh, There's a book that is read often in our house called, Are You My Mother? Have you ever heard this book? P.D. Eastman, it's a great book, wonderful book. It's read, read often in our house because my children have fully memorized it, and so they just, they get credit for reading it, reading it, no, 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 yeah, are you my mother? No, you're a snort. Are you a mother? No, yeah, no. No, they, they have fully memorized it. It's a, great, it's a great book, and one of the great things about children books is that it summarizes some amazing universal truths down to something very simple. And at the very, this book is about a bird that leaves the nest and goes around everywhere. Are you my mother? No, you're a cat. Are you a mother? Are you my mother? No, you know, goes on and on. And then till the very end, because it's a children's book, happy ending, the very end, the bird gets back to his or her nest, and the bird says to the, to the mama bird, you are a bird, and you are my mother. Jesus says to his people, I know you. You are Joe, and you are my brother. Jesus says, I know you. You are Mark. You are my brother. I know you. You are Dana. You are my sister. Jesus, I know you. You're Troy. Jesus says, I know you. You are Troy. You are my brother. Jesus says to his people, I know you. You are mine. You are his special possession. Peter's encouraging us, reminding us of who we are, all to point us to what we are to be about. At the end of verse 9, it says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Christians are to publish abroad the mighty works of God, which include both his activity in creation and his miracle of redemption in the life, death, resurrection, and revelation of Jesus Christ. The praise is based on what God has done for them. And Wayne Grudem, another theologian, I think this is the last theologian I'm quoting, don't worry. He says, God's purpose in redeeming us is not simply our own enjoyment, but that we might glorify him. 
seeking our own eternal well-being, right though that is, could never provide a truly satisfying goal for life. The answer to our search for ultimate meaning lies in declaring the excellencies of God. For He alone is infinitely worthy of glory. Redemption is ultimately not man-centered, but God-centered. And in a few minutes, we're going to sing the great African-American spiritual Christmas song, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Go Tell It on the Mountain that Jesus Christ is born. The great redemptive work, brothers and sisters, go tell it on a mountain. What I do most Sunday mornings is I uh, help out with a ministry downstairs called First Service Coffee. And uh, we've been doing it for about three years now in which most uh, every Sunday downstairs during the first service, people sit around tables, drink coffee, and hear a testimony from someone in the church. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, most of you know about this because I know that I'm looking out and I see a lot of faces that have shared at First Service Coffee. Just this past fall, just to give you a, a taste, um, there were a couple people that are struggling through divorce. One right in the middle of it, run, one right after it who both agree that Jesus has not abandoned them in the middle of pain and heartache. We had uh, some missionaries from South Sudan who came and they shared about the struggle that they're having loving their friends. They would call brothers and sisters in Christ that have been pushed out of their homes because of war, because of strife. We had a medical student who was raised here in West End Prez and who now lives down in New Orleans share uh, that she is able to worship uh, with a congregation that looks very different from her because she knows, and she says this over and over again, that we are, the things that unite us in Christ are stronger than the things that divide us. We had an Iraqi man who moved here with his family and, uh, and worships within this community. Uh, who gave praise because Jesus saw his family safe to America. And the great thing about his sharing was that unlike Americans, he was, he was bold and unashamed to get down on his knees and sing praises to God, literally singing praises to God while we sat around drinking coffee, starting a prayer chant over, pra- over praising Jesus because Jesus has saw him safe to America. We heard from a man who suffers almost daily from crushing guilt over a horrific event that um, he did years earlier. But he was able to say, even in that guilt, Jesus is with me. We heard from a college student who uh, gave praise to God for bringing her family, her and her family uh, emigrated here from Brazil, and she Praise God, even though it was difficult leaving all of her high school friends back in Brazil. We heard plenty of boring testimonies as well. And I talked to a lot of folks, asking them to share at First Service Coffee, and they say, well, my story's boring. My story's boring. Friends, your story is not boring. Any words that that come out of the mouth of my children about their day, I want to hear. I want to hear the story that they have. 
God wants to hear their story. We had people share about their doubts, about their guilts, about their shames, about their jealousies, about their angers, about their families who have been lost to war, about their families who have been lost to alcoholism, about the facts that they don't have a child and they want one, the fact that they don't have a spouse and they want one, the fact they don't have a job, a friend, the fact that they don't even have hope. And they all stand up and declare the goodness of God. Every week they stand up and say, this is who I am, this is who Jesus is. This is who I am. This is who Jesus is. Friends, ask yourself, whose are you? What story are you declaring today? What story are you declaring this week? And to summarize these verses, these many verses in uh, the second chapter of 1 Peter, Peter uses his own illustration, and this is how I'll end. I won't make up the illustration. I'll just use the one Peter used. It's in verse 10, and you probably missed it if you are a 21st century American, which you are. Um, I would have missed it too, but I had commentaries. And it says this in verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is almost a direct quote. It's like a poetic form of Hosea. Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, one of the oldest, like it's like really old. It was back when there still was in Israel, the northern kingdom. It was back before the Assyrians came in and and kicked them out. This Hosea is a very old prophet, and Hosea is a very confusing prophet as well. But at the very beginning of Hosea, God tells Hosea, go marry this woman named Gomer. Go marry her. She is an adulterous woman. Wow. Talk about hard premarital counseling right there. Hosea, God tells Hosea, go marry Gomer. And so God, so Hosea goes and marries Gomer, and Hosea and Gomer have children. And in Hosea 1, verses 6 and 8 and 9, I'm going to read these. It says this. She, Gomer, conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Verse 8, When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name Not My People, for you are not my people and I am not your God. Do you remember that Jeremiah passage I read earlier? It said, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. God just tells Hosea, name your son, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. What God is doing through Hosea's marriage, through Hosea, and through Hosea's children is reminding him that he is disgusted with their sin. And that's a hard story to hear. That's a hard truth to hear, that God is disgusted with their sin. And I, hearkening back to another earlier passage, 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam, all die. This happened to Hosea, 
Years later, while Hosea is still alive and ministering, the Assyrians came in and wiped out the northern kingdom that he was ministering to. No one apparently was listening. In Adam, all die. They were to receive no mercy. They were no longer God's people. But there is a promise. And the promise comes a few verses later in Hosea. Hosea 2, 14 to 15 and 21 to 23 says this, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there, uh, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the times when she came out of the land of Egypt, And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. I mean, you're hearing God is speaking, and the people and creation is responding. God is speaking, doing something, and creation is responding back. And I, God, will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to, not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Friends, the gospel would, be, would not be good news if you didn't have the fact that the sin is bad news. And the sin that you are not my people, that you have no mercy, that's bad news. The good news is God declares you were living in darkness. Once you were not a people, now you are my people. You were living in darkness once you had not received mercy. Now you have received mercy. In Christ, you are no longer rejected. In Christ, you have been accepted. You have access and you have received the mercy of God at his hand. In Christ, God says to his people, you are my beloved. You once received no mercy. And now, in Jesus, we have mercy. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear the fact that you have not rejected your people. That in spite of, your, in spite of our sin, you, in Christ, have made us all alive, bringing us out of darkness and into light. Give us faith to believe and eyes to see and ears to hear the goodness of your mercy and your acceptance of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is now the part of the service where we're going to be taking up an offering. Please hear, if you are visiting with us, please feel no pressure to give. Your presence here is gift enough. Uh, If you call West End Prez your home, then please give and give generously. This is also the place to put your tear off if you uh, have written anything in your tear off.